0: From the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, KUAR Public Radio brings you Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow with your host, Phil Marriage. Welcome to the
1: Crossroads of History. From KUAR and Little Rock, I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Now in our 21st year on the air, and still the only program on radio today dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought. So let me welcome you to the Crossroads of History as we begin the next chapter of our program's generational journey. Each of our generations has moved up a notch since we began back in 2001. Our topic this evening, first recorded in 2007, is Community and features the essays from the NPR series This I Believe. Our essay has come from Iowa, Virginia, North Carolina, California, and Paris, France, The meaning of community has certainly changed even in just these last 14 years. Just think about your own community. We'll begin our discussion right after the news. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the beginning of the next phase of our generational program. For the last 20 years, we've aired over 270 unique topics with a guest from the older, middle, and the younger generations. You name it, we've discussed it. Our conversations have never been confrontational, only comparative. This new phase will still present new topics, but our emphasis will be on revisiting many of those earlier topics. There aren't many advantages to aging, but in our case, time has a way of adding even better perspectives to our thoughts. To enable time to enrich our topics, we have changed from a monthly program to a quarterly presentation. We have also revamped our archive so that you can listen to all our past programs, on the KUAR program page at KUAR.org. This evening, I chose one of our more unusual program formats. NPR produced this, I believe, for several years, offering essays from listeners all over the country. One topic which has real relevance to our society today is community. We first aired this back in 2007. Politics and COVID-19 have wreaked real havoc on our communities. As we go forward, I hope these essays help us find a new future together. So I hope you enjoy this program. Our topic for this program is community, and I think you'll hear through these essays just how our generations have shared a close connection to their home communities. Along with our stereotypical idea of the American dream, many of us share another stereotypical idea of what the ideal community is. My guest essayists are Mariah Clemp from Wakama, Iowa, and she writes from the under-18 age group. Molly critch Liberto is from St. Louis, but she joins us from Paris, France, and is in the 18 to 30 generation. From 30 to 50, we have Frederick Gluck, and he joins us from Arlington, Vermont. And as we move to the 50 to 60 generation, our guest is Robin Edgar from Charlotte, North Carolina. And from the over 65 age group, our guest is Ernie McRae from San Diego, California. But I'd like to begin the essays today with Mariah Klimp. Mariah Klimp currently resides in the small town of Wakama, Iowa. She's a junior at Turkey Valley High School where she is involved in many extracurricular activities such as wrestling, cheerleading, band, and yearbook. Outside of school, she is very busy working on her family farm and participating in the 4-H. Recently, Mariah was involved in the Iowa Celebrity Showcase in Des Moines, where she had an informal conversation with former Governor Terry Branstad about the controversial issue of the death penalty. In the future, Mariah plans to attend a private four-year college and eventually go on to law school and become a lawyer. And she joins us from Wakama, Iowa. And Mariah Klemp, welcome to the program. Thank you. First off, where is Wakama in relationship to the, the state of Iowa?
2: We're in the very northeastern part of Iowa, about 50 miles away from the Mississippi River.
1: Okay, and is your town small enough that you haven't had any of the presidential contenders in there?
2: Actually, about 15 miles away, many of the presidential candidates have stopped by and started their campaigning.
1: So you're within 15 miles of them? Yep. Well, that's pretty close. (laughs) Mariah, go ahead and read your essay for us.
2: Okay. Growing up just outside of a rural town of 300 people, I quickly learned what is expected in this tight-knit community. I wave at the people I meet on the road, even if I don't know them. I help my neighbor when the cows get out at 2 a.m. And when our closest neighbor was rushed into the hospital and didn't come home for weeks, the rest of the neighborhood helped his family put in the remainder of his crops. Many of the area families all came together that summer to mow, rake, and bale this farmer's hay. These farmers could have easily been doing their own farm work when the weather was beautiful, but instead they put their friend and neighbor first and got the job done. Dad even joked there were so many people unloading hay in the hay barn, they were all bumping into each other. Living in this area gives me a sense of pride that I cherish dearly. The exact same act of coming together also happens during times of grief. It is not unusual to bring plates of cookies or bars when there is a painful death in the neighbor's family. Many times the family is so overcome with the massive amounts of food in their house, they end up regifting them to relatives who stopped for the funeral. It is hard to walk into the local fertilizer plant without hearing, hey Scotty, well hello Miss Mariah, would you like some cookies and juice for the road? In the local convenience store, I always see people I know and strike up a great conversation that lasts for more than a few minutes. I absolutely love going into town because I know wherever I go, there is always a kind person ready to wave and smile saying, Hello, Mariah. Then there are the delivery men. Our family always looks forward to seeing the UPS delivery man. Last winter, my mother, who had just come home from the doctor with pneumonia, was struggling to carry in the groceries without slipping on the ice. The UPS man happened to be delivering a package at the exact same time and insisted he carry in the groceries for her while she rested. I believe that some of the greatest acts of kindness are learned in the rural areas where everyone knows everybody and we all get along. I am thankful to grow up in small-town Iowa, where I wave at every person I meet, and in turn, they wave back. Around here, parents instill a genuine sense of caring and concern towards other people, which is one of the greatest values a child can ever learn.
1: Thank you, Mariah. That was terrific. Thanks. And I do have a question for you. At your age, have you ever spent much time in any other areas outside of Wacoma?
2: No, I've actually only been to Minnesota and Wisconsin.
1: (laughs) Okay. I
2: I don't do too much traveling. I'm always busy with the farm and stuff.
1: Well, I'm kind of curious from the standpoint of your generation, your other friends that are about your same age, do they sort of share the same idea of the, the small town that your essay speaks of?
2: Oh, yes. We all love the small town. And as we're starting to get older and look towards colleges, I see many of my peers trying to look for colleges around northeast Iowa where we still have the rural area. I think a lot of us are actually scared to go on to the big cities just because it's such a huge change for us.
1: I'm sure. That's a different community, isn't it? (laughs) Although I think I'd give up the ice that you talked about a little bit earlier there. (laughs) Okay, we'll move on into the second essay that our essayist today is uh, Molly critchel Molly critchel has made her home in Sykestown, Missouri, Columbia, Missouri, San Diego, California, St. Louis, Missouri, as well as New Orleans, Louisiana. When she wrote this essay, she was a French teacher in St. Louis, Missouri. This year, she is living in Paris, France, teaching English as a participant in the Fulbright Teacher Exchange Program. She was motivated to write this essay in support of rebuilding one of the communities that has shaped who she is today. Molly joins us from Paris, France. Molly uh, Liberto, welcome to the program, and welcome back into the States. Thank you. (laughs) And I I must tell those that are listening, as you're listening to the program, Molly, is. I think it's a seven hours difference, or is it it 10 hours different?
3: It's seven hours. Seven
1: hours. Molly, welcome to the program, and if you would, go ahead and read your essay for us.
3: Okay. New Orleans should be rebuilt. I need it. I do not need New Orleans for shelter or for my work. My current home stands strong in St. Louis, untouched by Hurricane Katrina, and I am gainfully employed in Missouri as a French teacher. I do not need New Orleans for intellectual reasons. I learned its historical importance in eighth grade Louisiana history class. Thank you, Mrs. Dooley. From my political science classes in college, I learned its economic importance. These arguments for rebuilding are strong but they do not seal the deal for me. I need it for more important reasons. I need to know that a place exists for jazz and Mardi Gras, shrimp pool boys and jambalaya. I need to know that there is a place where people call you a darling baby and sweetie all in the same sentence and mean it. I need to know that the beautiful people I knew growing up and the beautiful family I married into all have a place to live. See, I need this city to come back. Somehow, if it doesn't, my early teenage years are lost. Without New Orleans, I can never go visit the place I stood on St. Charles Avenue for my first Mardi Gras at age 12, scared and excited. I won't be able to recreate the energy in the air, the smell of jambalaya and alcohol, the sound of Dixieland jazz, and people meeting in the street. If I can't go back and see it, hear it, and smell it, I might not believe that it was ever real. I need it so that my future children can discover for themselves why I chose to get married there. When they go into Swiss Bakery and ask for a pedophore, they will understand how it feels to be called Dahlin by someone you don't know. They will understand the magic of being called baby by the people you know and love and why you wouldn't want something as important as your wedding to be held in any other place. Most importantly, I need a home for all the beautiful people who live there. We can't have the Paul boy makers in Texas, the Mardi Gras float builders in North Carolina, and the Yats, as in where Yat darling, in Philadelphia, because the gumbo that is New Orleans doesn't taste right or smell right without all of its ingredients. And all those ingredients come together in New Orleans. They have to. Because of the time that I've spent in this city, there is a small part of me that is New Orleans. I cannot explain myself without it. I cannot imagine a world without New Orleans. The people are among the most unique I know, and the world would not be the same without them living all together in this magic place. New Orleans must be rebuilt. This I believe. Thank you, Molly. You're welcome.
1: And how long did you live in the New Orleans area?
3: I lived there two years. My dad went back and did a fellowship at Tulane University, and that's where I started studying French, and now I'm a French teacher, so I've always had a real connection to the city.
1: Was the French different there than the French that you're speaking now?
3: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't have all those y'alls in it, huh? <laughs> have you been back to uh, New Orleans since the, the flood?
3: my husband is from the new orleans area or he's from a small a suburb called metairie and um we've been back i think 3 or 4 times since the flood and and uh, the hurricane it's i'm shocked every time i go back
1: well now that sense of community that you felt then what percentage of it is back
3: i since i'm not an expert i i couldn't say but i know the last time i was back was in july of this year and um, I drove around with my mother-in-law, my sister-in-law, and we drove for miles that were completely abandoned.
1: So it's a pretty low percentage that has come back then.
3: In, in the area we were driving, yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we've heard our first two essayists today, Mariah Klimp from Wakama, Iowa, and Molly Critch-Liberto, who joined us from Paris, France. Now we're going to take a short break here, and then we'll be back with the other essayists. We will continue with our other essayists here on Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow and KUAR right after this short break. We're back and we want to get back to our This I Believe essayists as they discuss community. Our next essayist is Fred Gluck. He's a refugee from the high-tech and advertising businesses who decided that after 28 years in the corporate world, The opportunity for a simpler life focused on serving others and God was just too good an opportunity to pass up. He is currently living in a small town of Arlington in southern Vermont and spends his days working at his dream job as a clerk and merchandise manager in the local hardware store. And he joins us from his home in Arlington, Vermont. Fred Gluck, welcome to the program. Hi. How's things there today in uh, Arlington, Vermont?
0: Well, it's one of those almost perfect fall days where the sky is blue and it's about 50 degrees and the mountains are still a whole lot of color on the mountains, so it's just a picture-perfect day.
1: A perfect fall day, huh?
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah.
1: Well, Molly, what's what's the weather like in Paris?
2: It's cold. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, here in Little Rock, it's cold and rainy, too. And, Mariah, how about up there in Iowa?
2: Oh, it's a beautiful, sunny day out.
1: Well, we're all across the world today with the program. But, Fred, welcome to the program again, and go ahead and read your essay for us.
0: I titled this essay, The Community in Which We Live. I've started to hang around my little town a lot more these days. Life and career changes have given me the opportunity to do those important tasks like walking to the post office, stopping in the general store for a cup of coffee, and visiting the bank to make a weekly deposit. I take joy in the fact that the bank teller knows their customers, not only by name, but also a few of the important happenings in their life. I relish the conversations I have at the general store with the electrician who helped build our house. He's there picking up a few things on his way home. It's been six years since we saw each other, but I now know he's completely recovered from his stroke and is doing well. I also know that the clerk, whose job was temporarily interrupted as her National Guard unit was deployed to Iraq, is back home and thinking about what she's going to do in the future. I'm enjoying the voyage of rediscovering community. Community, I believe is becoming a lost concept. I hear about online community and community fairs, but I do fear that real community, the heart and soul of caring for those who are around you every day, is a breed in danger. I believe in community. I believe in community because of the joy I get when walking down the street and waving to somebody who drives by. I believe in community because the people I meet at our small general store feel free to share their goings on, good and bad, because they know that living together takes care and love. Community used to be ingrained in our upbringing. Being raised in a small town where, for 12 years, I went to school with many of the same people meant I grew to know my friends' families and my neighbors. They all watched out for me. Living in the same community as my grandparents meant that I could ride my bike over to enjoy a soda with Grandpa and that I could play in their backyard. My small community meant I could walk to school, and if I ever needed help, I knew that the person who stopped to give me assistance had my best interests in mind. I fear that the concept of community is slowly being dismembered. Reasons? Few of us attend college in our hometown. We leave and never return. We start work and a family, and find it's easy to up and move whenever a better opportunity comes along. We've become self-sufficient and can easily get what we want from wherever we want. We're a mobile society, and we just don't want to put out the effort to know our neighbors. And most importantly, few of us spend any time at all sitting on the front porch where we wave and say hello to those who pass by. The concept of community is not completely gone yet. I like to think that it's temporarily asleep, ready to be awakened by those who care and those who have a deep heart for others. It's ready to be reawakened by those who leave their cars in the garage and walk to the store, by those who say hello to the people they pass by, by those who take time to wave and say hello to the postman, by those who slow down and take the time to chat with the neighbors. In some small way, I want to think that I have started to reawaken community in myself. It's a joy to care about those who live around you. That's why I believe in community.
1: Thank you, Fred Gluck. I do have a question about halfway through your essay there, you talk about that you feared that the sense of community was being dismembered, and you gave several reasons there. And I'm wondering, yeah. from your generation's perspective, is this something that you see uh, the same attitude by many people in your same age group, that uh, that those items that you listed there are shared by by your age group?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, yes, I do. And I guess, uh, you know, I see it in the town where I live in, in Vermont. It's funny because very few people were actually born and raised here. Uh, most people are. People like myself who have moved here from somewhere else, which means their families are wherever, and my family is spread all across the nation. It's just because it's so easy to get up and move, to pick up and move. I was born on the West Coast and just decided one day that I wanted to raise my family in the East Coast, and so I left my community and came here.
1: All those reasons fit many of the people your same age group then.
0: I think so, yeah. I know my high school class is spread all over the country, everywhere. Thank you.
1: Okay, let's move on now into the next essayist, and this is Robin Edgar, and she joins us from Charlotte, North Carolina. She's a professional writer and a storyteller for over 30 years, and she believes everyone has a story to tell. She conducts reminiscence writing workshops based on her book, In My Mother's Kitchen, An Introduction to the Healing Power of Reminiscence in a Variety of Venues, including universities and art centers. She also serves as a national keynote speaker and workshop facilitator for organizations such as Hospice and the Alzheimer's Association. The recipient of the Charlotte 2006 Arts and Science Council Regional Artist Project Grant, she was the project coordinator for the Personal Legacies Project. She helped to create an exhibition at Smithsonian Affiliate, The Charlotte Museum of History, a book by CPCC Press and a documentary by PBS affiliate WTVI. She's the mother of three grown children, and Robin lives in Charlotte, North Carolina with her husband and joins us from there. Robin, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you, Phil.
1: And as we've listened to the other essays, I'm enjoying the prospect of listening to yours, so go right ahead.
4: Thank you, Phil. Life Lessons from Our Elders. I recently had the privilege to interview about 90 people, primarily between the ages of 85 and 103, for an exhibit at the Charlotte Museum of History called Personal Legacies Surviving the Great Depression. With the ups and downs of our economy in mind, I originally set out to discover secrets to financial security should we ever come into hard times again. Many of the participants shared that being practical and learning to do without helped a great deal to survive during that era. Who does not have stories about their parents saving pieces of soap, tinfoil, or other such odds and ends? They also advised future generations to avoid spending money you didn't have and to save what you could. The universal wisdom, however, that I gleaned from those conversations turned out to be something quite different from what I expected. I came to realize and now truly believe that the prevailing message for survival is not something you could buy, much less accomplish on your own. What actually holds everyone together through the lean times are the extended families, close-knit communities, and neighborhood churches or places of worship. Survival is not about accumulating wealth, but rather sharing what you have. People not only survived, they thrived during those times. From the destitute mill towns and farms to the small neighborhoods in the city, everyone knew each other and looked out for one another. Within those tightly knit communities, there truly was no child left behind and elders were cared for and treated with respect. Fred Brown, who lived in a rural area, pointed out that people lived closer together in those days, and they respected and helped one another. They left food for needier families on their porches at night and made sure to pass on hand-me-downs to their children. Sarah Bryant, who lived in the city, said she learned the importance of looking out for others when she helped her father make sure the little boy down the street, whose father had no work, received presents for Christmas. In today's world, it appears that this strong sense of community where everyone knows each other is being mowed over with rapid growth and bigger is better attitudes. After listening to my elders, I believe the best investment I can make is to bank my time, money, and efforts in my family and community. How about you?
1: Thank you, Rob. That's a wonderful essay.
0: Thank
1: you. And I do have a question for you. I was very interested in what you were talking about when you you spoke with so many elderly people there, and then you kind of broke it down into the the three areas, the extended families, the close-knit communities, and the neighborhood churches. Is this something that you noticed that was very general amongst that older group that you talked to?
4: Actually, there were four themes that came out of the people that I interviewed, and that's how we organized the exhibit in the book, and that was standing together as a family and a community, working through the hard times, having faith to carry on, and making do with what you had.
1: You were speaking to older people. When, when you take that and, and internalize that within the group of people that have become your generation, do you think that your generation shares that same attitude that you saw in that older generation?
4: I think... That it varies across our vast continent, going from smaller towns to larger cities, like where Mariah lives. She can still experience those kind of things. But in the larger cities, now I grew up in New York City, I had an opportunity to grow up where everybody on my block knew each other and everybody looked out for one another then. But today, it appears, and now that I live in Charlotte, that people will click their garage doors open and drive into their garage and shut their doors before they say hello or, or look to somebody else. And there's not people giving other people rides in the street. It's like no car left behind. Everybody's <laughs> driving their car because they have to do something specifically for their life. And it's, it's incredible how closed off people are to one another.
1: Do you feel a little lost in that group?
4: I do. It's very difficult to make friends if you haven't grown up with people where you can stay connected. And even dear, dear friends that I have, like Fred from school, have moved all across the country, and they don't have time to have long conversations on the phone anymore like they used to.
1: So the extended family is just barely extended at all anymore, right?
4: Well, that's true. I mean, my own children are spread out in Texas, Washington D.C. and New York.
1: Well let's move on to our final essayist today and then we'll get into the discussion with all my essayists. Ernie McRae is going to speak from that over 65 age group and Ernie comes to us from San Diego, California and before I uh, do the introduction to you Ernie how are things in the weather department out there today? Well the
5: weather is wonderful as is typical of San Diego but with all the fires I'm sitting here and my what used to be my daughter's, and we haven't been affected by the fire that way. So I just thought of how I worded that. But you know, my family's gone on, and I'm in my daughter's twin daughter's room, and and uh, breathing very foul air. Although we are very safe from the actual flames. But with this whole theme of community, uh, I think we're showing the world what community is about here in San Diego right now, and then up in the L.A. area, and in Orange County, where people are pulling together and taking people in. We just had a family in for a couple of days who uh, lived in the path of the the flames, and, and fortunately their house uh, remains. But I'm I'm seeing a lot of that happening in my community right now. And in this tragedy, I I feel very proud to be a Southern California, I guess.
1: Well you know it's very ironic and I had <laughs> obviously had no idea when we started working on uh, setting up this program that the the idea of community would come at such a an important time in our yep. nation's history and we'll get into that in a little bit but I would like to hear your essay first and let me tell everyone that Ernie McRae is an educator, a retired principal with the San Diego City Schools who now works occasionally with teachers to help them use drama and poetry and movement in their classrooms to make learning fun. He's a father, a grandfather, a great-grandfather, and he says that with a great smile. He's a writer, an athlete, an actor, a traveler, and a community and political activist who rises every day to make the world a better place. And Ernie does join us from San Diego. Ernie, from that older generation perspective, would like to hear you read your essay, so go right ahead.
5: Okay. I get up every morning and try to make the world a bit better than it is. It might sound lofty but I'm just doing what my mother and grandfather raised me to do. They were two of the most do unto others as you would have them do unto you people I have ever known, and it rubbed off on me. They taught me through example what getting involved is all about. Like, for instance, I could come home from school with, say, a story about somebody being teased on the playground at recess, and they most likely would respond with, so what did you do to get the kids to stop? Oh, without their love to lean on, I don't know how I would have survived emotionally in those days because Jim Crow was all over the place. And second-class citizenship made me entertain some dark, hateful thoughts every now and then. If God had answered my fervent cry back then, there would be absolutely no evidence of Caucasians ever having existed in the universe. But those ancestors of mine would throw out the names of some decent, loving white people I knew And I'd come to my senses and realize you can't judge a people by the actions of a few. I learned from them that an individual can indeed make a difference in the world. And having worked with kids most of my life, I've seen evidence of such a notion over and over again. I don't know how many times I've run into old students of mine who give me a big, sunny smile and a big, tight bear hug and then say to the person on their arm something that affirms that I've touched their lives. I can hear in my mind a compilation of their voices. Hey, honey, this is the teacher I was telling you about, the one who hung in there with me, the one who did Princess 1999 with my homeboys and me at the talent show, the one who helped us write the poems we sent to our dads in Vietnam, the one who could dunk a basketball. Then they proudly tell me about how they're giving back to their communities, how they're changing the world. And nothing has made my heart sing and made me feel like I've made a difference more than an experience I had not too long ago. I was in a large crowd of people at a peace rally when one of the speakers pointed at me and said into the microphone, I wouldn't be standing here today if it hadn't been for that man, my elementary school principal. He taught me to look at what the world needs and then do something to make it better. Moments later, hundreds of voices are chanting, No more war, no more war. On the next day, I was off to old tricks, trying to make the world a bit better than it is.
1: That's a wonderful essay there, Ernie. Thank you. And I I must ask you, as I was reading your essay right near the beginning of it, when you were talking about your grandparents and what they did and and the fact that you were living in a Jim Crow age, did you have a sense that there were actually two communities as you were growing up?
5: Oh, there, there definitely were two communities. But actually, you know, even though I mentioned my anger at times, I I kind of went freely between all the communities. This was in Tucson, Arizona, by the way. I'm just that kind of person. I just feel like I have to be involved and see what was going on. And I knew Tucson inch by inch. I'd get on my bike pretty much every day after school and just ride into some area I had never been around before. But it was the black community where I got my strength. I went to a very child-oriented church where, you know, we'd say our little memory verses and the, and the congregation would act as though we were Sidney Portier or somebody. You know, they would just you know, they would just rave about us. And, and in my neighborhood, I'd walk down the street and people say, How you doing, young man? You still getting good grades in school? Well, you know, we're proud of you. So I had a lot of that and... And being a, a star athlete, I kind of, you know, was at a certain kind of level of esteem in the community. Uh, but Jim Crow would would cut through that sometimes and just stain me to death. But uh, it was my grandfather mostly who would always bring me back down to earth and, and explain, you know, you're mad at a white person, not white people. And he helped me to grow into a... I think a, a very loving
1: human being. As you got older, then, did you have a sense where that two community aspect actually became a one community sense?
5: It has now. Since I left Tucson and moved to San Diego, Tucson has become uh, a, a quite a, a a caring community. You know, it was part of the sanctuary movement, uh, you know, with El Salvadoran refugees a few years ago. So I feel very proud that they've turned that around and you don't feel that color line, you know, as you don't in a a lot of communities in in the United States now, but it's developed into quite a city, I think. Well,
1: again, thank you, Ernie, for that great essay. You're listening to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow here on KUAR. I'm Phil Marriage, and we'll continue with our discussion of community after this final break, so stay with us. We're back, and we want to get back to our This I Believe essayists as they discuss community. We're back again. I do want to start our discussion with one question to all of my S.A.S., and I know this will hit each generation just a little bit differently, but I'd like to start, I guess, right there in the middle, and let me start this with uh, Robin Edgar. Uh, how does your perception of community compare with your parents' generation and then also with your children's generation as you see them in their community situations?
4: Well, growing up, as I told you, I grew up in New York City, but we, we lived out in the suburbs. We had uh, close to the suburbs, and our family was pretty close with everybody on the block we knew everybody's names, and we would sit outside in the summertime, and the children would play with the fireflies, and you know, we'd go trick-or-treating within the neighborhood, and there was a closeness there. And if somebody had a tragedy, like Mariah said, then we'd all pitch in and help out that family. But as we grew older and we moved out of those communities, I never found that sense of community again. No matter how hard I tried, I lived in Florida, I would become the neighborhood block captain and try and do a crime watch and bring people together but I could never seem to get that cohesiveness again like we had then. Even with family circles that my families had at that time, I try and get my cousins and my relatives together again but we're too far spread apart. We just don't seem to be able to have that cohesiveness.
1: I mentioned in my introduction about you that you have three grown children. What age groups would they fall in?
4: Uh, Well, my daughter is 30, and she's the eldest, and she's in uh, San Antonio, Texas right now. I have a grandson there, too, and her husband is in the Army. And so they have kind of a family within the post there. Even though they live off the post, they're very involved with that. He's a captain, so they have his men that they take care of there. And my son, who is 27, lives in Brooklyn, New York, and he's very close with all of his friends. He's always out with his friends there. His friends have become his family. And then my youngest daughter is 24, and she's in D.C., and she works for the Latino Economic Development Council, so she has kind of adopted the people of Latin American heritage there to, you know, try and help them with literacy and help them start their own businesses there. So they've become her family. But we rarely get together as a family. It's rare that we're all together anymore for holidays.
1: So the community for them is in in a little isolated area, and you can't really bring together what you had when you were younger then, from what you're saying.
4: Right. It's really more that the workplace has become people's families, whatever their work is or their obligations there.
1: That's their community?
4: Yeah, that's basically become their community. I think the attitude that I see here in Charlotte, it's very driven by the banking community, and people are just driving and thriving on their work, and it's kind of sad, although churches are very important to people here, but it's all capsulized, not reaching out, we're just getting too
1: large. Well, let's jump back to Mariah Klimt. Mariah, you had a chance to listen to the other four essays there, and you being the youngest person, how did the idea of community, as you heard it from the older people, does it sound anything similar to what your parents' ideas of community is?
2: My mom and dad grew up in very small towns and my mom would stay overnight at her grandma's house when she would have confirmation class and their families were all so close together and now we're all spread out and it's very rare if we get together for every single holiday during the year. We're very lucky if we can get together twice a year.
1: Really? That kind of surprises me after listening to your essay. I would have thought that you guys were pretty close still.
2: We're about 150 miles away from where my my mother's family lives. But she was diagnosed with a brain tumor about 15 years ago. So it's very hard for us to travel up there. She's not feeling very well.
1: Now, when you look at your mom and dad and the sense of community that they grew up, even with your grandparents, do you feel that there's much of a difference between what your grandparents and your parents went through compared to what your generation is going through?
2: Oh, yes. There's a huge difference. Really? have the small town values but what we do like around the community now it's a lot different there's a lot of kids around our community that you don't do the community service anymore it's all about driving around and having fun and my mom and dad they would stay home with their families and watch tv together or read together, you know, read the Bible, and now we just don't do that anymore.
1: That sounds a little bit different than what you were talking about, Robin, in your discussion with the older people in your work.
2: Right, and
4: the advice for future generations that the older people gave was to share with one another, get involved in your community. These people are in their 80s, 90s, and they're still volunteering for the Red Cross, volunteering for their church groups.
1: They're not sitting there watching TV too much?
4: No, they're out there volunteering and still taking responsibility for their community. My dad had a saying. He said, I kept saying somebody should do something, and then I realized I was somebody.
1: Well, Fred Gluck, I'm assuming that your parents, or at least your grandparents, were also of that Depression era.
0: My grandparents, yeah. And it's funny, both of my sets of my grandparents actually left their communities, one in New York City and the other in Philadelphia and moved out to California in the uh, 40s I think it was and so they really started over again you know left pieces of their community where they were and their families and things like that i guess in my family it's been pretty normal to be spread all over the country i have siblings we kind of joke that we try and get as far apart from each other as we <laughs> possibly can not intentionally by any means but um you know my my folks still live in california and i have a a sister in Florida, a brother and a son in both in Brooklyn and another son outside of Las Vegas. So it's just kind of the way it's been, I think.
1: And how does that really compare with your grandparents or your parents' generation from that sense of community? You, do you feel estranged from your community at all?
0: You know, I think I would have had I not sort of uh, had these life changes that I talked about about two years ago. Um, it's very easy. And I think uh, somebody said that, you know, your community became your work uh, and that's exactly what happened i happened not to be working in the town where i was living and so i knew very very few of my neighbors but knew a lot of people at work and when i thought about it i said you know that's not really being involved in community at all and you know i think it was about a year and a half 2 years ago where job situations and other things changed i really started working and living in the same community and like i said in the essay it's been a great experience it's it's wonderful it's just you know walking down the street and somebody drives by and waves at you because they know you or you're in the bank or somewhere else and and you run into people uh, where i work in in, a, in the hardware store in town I see everybody, and it, there's very little transaction going on and a lot of conversation about what's happening <laughs> in this and very other. It's, it's great. It's fabulous, actually.
1: Well, Ernie McRae, you've had a chance over the, your life, being our senior member here, mm-hmm. as you've listened to everybody talk about these things and you compare it to what your parents and grandparents did, how has it all changed for you, for you, from what you
5: see? Well, I think in the large scheme of things, there are some changes, but I've managed to Find that community feel throughout my life, and and my parents had it, uh, you know, with the black community, they pretty much had to band together, you know, and protect each other and look out for each other, and and I grew up with that kind of care, but here in San Diego, I've I sought out a neighborhood that reminded me of of mine, and and I live in a neighborhood where we all know each other, and we have. Um, neighborhood stores and we have cafes and I live in a very old part of town. Our house is close to a hundred years old and and uh, we say hello to each other and, and we help each other out. And being around schools, I've always had these built-in communities and then my family becomes part of each of those communities, you know, at PTA meetings and Halloween carnivals and things like that. So my personal life has been a little different than I think than the world in general, but I've sought out that community as very I thrive on people knowing who I am and and counting on me to contribute, you know, whatever talents or, you know, resources I have. It's it's not a Pollyanna world, but I've uh, I've never left
1: community. Well, let, let me ask all of you a question. As we go into the future, do you guys look at uh, the idea of community as being separate from an immigration standpoint with all these different uh, heritages that are here? Or even in your case, Ernie, as you look from the racial standpoint uh, into the future, what do you guys think about the mixing of community amongst all the various uh, Melting pots of, of society. Let me start with you, Arnie. Go ahead.
5: I, well, I believe it's it's very essential because we have to understand each other. And and you mentioned immigration. What's happening around immigration is bigger than the actual problem. I think you know people are getting. I'm I'm seeing a lot of racism come out now. You know, with all towards all the illegals and 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 this type of thing and. And people need to get away from that. And usually I don't have a lot of hope in political leaders, but I think whoever is the next president is going to have to set the tone for us to get back together because what's happened with our world now and with our country and the way we're looked at throughout the world, that's going to have to be turned around and someone is going to have to say the correct words and and put in the correct programs and, and put something in place that will help us turn things around. I think when you're struggling in a troubled world like this, you tend to look for somebody to uh, blast and to put down, and undocumented uh, immigrants are, are facing a lot of wrath right now. But it was interesting, there were some people the other day, when the fire started, there was some conversation about how a lot of the so-called illegals were the people who kept people's property <laughs> kept brush off people's property and you know and and now we're seeing how we're interconnected with them so that might be something to turn it around
1: How about you Molly Liberto, uh as you look to the uh, future with the melting pot of society
3: Recently I'm having a unique perspective on what it's like to be an immigrant mm-hmm. I recently spent, on two separate occasions, two and a half hours in the immigration office in France, trying Mm. to get all the correct papers and dot dot all my I's and cross all my T's.
5: Trying to get your green card.
3: (laughs) (laughs) My carte de saison. But my husband and I were there waiting, and we said, you know, and I'm sure that our own government, the U.S. government, is the same way. We make it so difficult to go through the legal process that it's... To me, quite understandable why people don't go through it, because at this point, I'm an exchange, student exchange program, and I know what the people that have been going to the U.S. have been going through, and this is with a federal program, and still there's a lot of bureaucracy to deal with. I guess I may in that generation where I, I want to make sure that we're being human and that we're not denying people access to things that are essential to life, but also realizing that at some point it, we do have to come up with the money for it. But So I don't know what the answer is, but it seems like right now it, the system just seems very bureaucratic and unfriendly and unwelcoming, at least the, what I'm experiencing right
1: now. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Robin Edgar, looking at the future, uh, bringing uh, all of us together from the immigration and, and race and everything uh, f- for that sense of community? I
4: actually teach intercultural communication classes where i teach people how to communicate with other cultures because we are continuing to become a country where there's different cultures in our everyday life and you you need people need to learn how to accept the other people and celebrate their differences as well as their similarities and i tell everybody let's face it we all have so much in common we all have a mother and a father that's how we got here and we have desires for our lives and our children and one of the best ways to dispel prejudice is to unite in an effort together, like Ernie was describing, people uniting together to help one another in San Diego in the fire. And I know, for instance, when Fred probably moved to this small town of Vermont, it's there's kind of a cliche about Ver Vermonters that if you're not from Vermont you know you're you kind of not in their league but i'm sure by joining everybody in conversation and waving to everybody he slowly melded into the culture and they've accepted his differences and recognized his
0: similarities it, it's a it's a long slow <laughs> process <laughs> i think there are only 3 people who were born in vermont never are come beginning to believe it but yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it 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 is. So
1: it was very smart for you to get a job in the hardware store then, right?
0: Well, that's one of the reasons why I did it, I think. You know, if you're not if you don't walk around and talk to people and know people and see people, you're not going to be part of the community. And I find people here very accepting. They just do it much more slowly than, you know, you might somewhere else kind of continuing on the theme here, I think that community is going to start to grow uh, uh, because people will be forced into it by various things, you know, survival. The Depression was a community builder because people were forced into it to survive, and I I just call me a doomsdayist, I don't know, but, you know, that I think is going to happen again at some point in time, And, and that is where hopefully a lot of the racial barriers will come tumbling down because... People will see people as people, not as people of different races or colors, or from a different country they'll see you know this is my next door neighbor um kinds of things
4: but well, I just wanted to share one last thought about that that I tell people the largest part of brotherhood is otherhood, and we have to be able to embrace people's otherhood in order to have brotherhood
5: Wow have a- talking about something I'm (laughs) going (laughs) to (laughs) steal. I love
1: that. Well, let me go with a a final thought from each of you. Let's start with the youngest generation and go end up with Ernie and the oldest generation there. Any final thoughts you might have, Mariah Clem?
2: I just wanted to say that as I start to go off to college, I'm really going to miss this tight-knit community here. And I plan on trying to stay close to my community, but far enough away so that I'm starting to experience all these new things in a bigger city in northeast iowa the majority of the population is white you know and so i haven't actually experienced any different races being around me and i think it would be just absolutely great because just interacting with different people from a different culture seems so just very interesting for me and i don't know i'm very excited for the future and to see what will happen next
1: very good very good Molly, Liberto, final thoughts?
3: Yeah, I did want to say that, one, I wanted to tell uh, Ernie in San Diego that I know Golden Hill. All right. I live very, I, when I lived there, I lived very close to it, and it's a great community. And also, I've really enjoyed listening to all of you who have, seems, very similar thoughts into the importance of community. And, you know, my husband and I and friends, we talk about this a lot. And just, you know, I love a lot of the ideas being shared as far as being able to walk places which is something that's wonderful that I can do here in Paris, being able to, you know, being on the streets, interacting with people. When I lived in and as a small child, that's what I remember, and I really hope that we don't get so far away from that, that we're so impersonal.
1: When do you come back from France, Molly?
3: At the end of the school year. It's a year, so I'll be back, July or August.
1: Well, you sound like you're in the same room with all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Fred Gluck, do you have some final thoughts for us?
0: Yeah, get out of your cars. Just go for a walk. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, that really is it. If you you can't, you can't be involved in your community if you don't have face to face contact. If you don't have people to people contact, you know, just go walk to the bank. Uh, I mean, it'll it'll do you good because it'll save you on oil and fuel, and it'll also give you some good exercise. And you'll meet some great people. They're all there. You just have to get out and and talk to them. Say hello to them.
1: If nothing else, go to the hardware store and and talk to the people there. Right.
0: Absolutely,
1: Robin Edgar. How about your final thoughts?
4: You know what I would love to do is I I feel like I felt like I've been this female Don Quixote on this personal quest to get people to recognize that community is important and to bring it back into their lives. And I'd love to stay connected with all of the participants from today and maybe you know develop something from that where we can join together to communicate it even further out into our country. I like that That'd idea. Be
5: great.
1: Well, Ernie McCray, let's let you have the final word here from uh your older generation perspective.
5: I just like that whole other
1: hood. So Robin might be a, a footnote in one of your next books then yes. I And I do want to thank my special guests for being with me here today. Mariah Klimp, who joined us from Wacom, Iowa. She's a junior this year in high school. Molly Critchlow-Liberto, who joined us from Paris, France, and she's there teaching English this year. Fred Gluck from Arlington, Vermont, where he has reinvented his life working in the hardware store there now after being in high tech and advertising. Robin Edgar joined us from North Carolina, where she's a writer and storyteller. And then finally, Ernie McRae, who's out in San Diego. He's a retired principal from the San Diego School District. This has been our first program back as we begin the next phase of our generational lives. Our first 20 years are behind us now as we begin to hear and feel the changes time has brought us. I hope you've enjoyed this topic this evening. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow now moves to a quarterly program. So let me invite you back in October. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you then.